This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by David Hughes. Dave, how's things mate? Good mate, yeah. I've just uh, I've just realised I haven't got my glasses on, which, you know, going against <laughs> the grain a little bit considering people were asking where they bought them last week. Uh, so I'll have to put it, I'll have to put some on in a minute so I can see what I'm doing. But uh except for all that, mate, I'm good. How are you? I'm all right, yeah. Um we've got a fair bit to get through this week, so we're probably best getting started considering this is the QA that I teased <laughs> last week. And usually it takes us about four weeks to complete. So we're best getting done quick. Um, so, yeah, we've got Dave took half the questions, I've took half the questions as usual. Um, thanks for sending them in. We did get a fair amount. We will try and get through them all if possible. If we don't get to yours, it's just one of those unfortunate things. There's nothing in that. Don't take it personally. But, yeah, I think we'll make a start, mate. So, Dave, I'll let you go first. Okay, mate. I uh, <coughs> will get some glasses on at this point. Um <laughs> Not the not the frames I had on last week, by the way. So you know, that was an oversight on my part. Uh, yeah, substitute. Yeah, I don't know where the other ones are. Anyway, no one's tuned in for that talk. So yeah, uh, to start, we had Neil Coates who said, um, "Can you do a bit of a deep dive on on Taki? Obviously, Taki Minamino. Um, you know, his potential stats, etc. A um, little bit of a." certainly this season it's it's not a straightforward one that because the obvious issue is is is, is lack of game time you now he's played all competitions about just over a thousand minutes so it's really hard to take those numbers too serious especially when you consider we're coming into april you know a lot of the campaigns being played it's not as if he's only coming in january like was the case you know a year or two ago um but interestingly, he's a, he's a player that does look good across that small sample. You know, he, uh, his numbers tend to be quite good. He, I think he scored about nine goals this season, which is, works out at about just under um, 0.8 goals per 90, which is really high. Um, and when you watch him, he does, he does seem to do quite well. Um, he's, he's probably maybe a little bit better than uh, we were concerned about Josh when we maybe spoke about him in the summer. Um, looked a little bit of a lost cause. I don't think that's the case now. Um, in terms of potential, though, do, us, do do I ever see him becoming a regular in this Liverpool side? Probably not. You know, I think he is, he is a good player. You can see why Liverpool signed him. He's a useful player. He seems to have a bit of a shot on that in terms of scoring, scoring goals when given the opportunity to play. But do we kind of see him being a regular in this team? Probably not. But that doesn't mean that he might stick around. When you say potential as well, he's he's twenty seven. <laughs> so, yeah, I think certain players like Jota and Diaz have been signed as the next player to uh, to take the reins, basically. But I think Minamino was signed as was always signed as a backup. I think he'll always be that. He'll always be a decent one as well. Mm. Uh, so my first question is from Eric Belt, and it's the first of many. On Salah's contract, uh, we did get a fair few of these. We're going to address each one on an individual basis as long as it's unique enough. So his question is along the lines of, um, do 
do think the club is in a better position to not budge on selling negotiations, basically because the club have bought in Diaz, bought in Jota for good deals, modern attacking players, um, and people talk about how you've got to replace Salah by spending hundreds of millions, but maybe Jota and Diaz are proof that you don't need to spend that much. Uh, and I think it's a great point. I agree. I think people, it's surprising me because people generally are terrified at the thought of Salah leaving. We're never going to be able to replace him or losing the best player in the world, all this sort of stuff. But Liverpool is a club that found him. Liverpool picked up Luis Diaz. Um, Liverpool picked up Jota when other clubs from the same league seem, seem to be totally overlooking him. Same when it comes to Sadio Mane. And Roberto Firmino as well, to an extent. So I think out of every club in the world, arguably, I think Liverpool are probably the best at picking up these forwards, just hit after hit after hit. And I think if Liverpool can't keep Salah for whatever reason, then I do think Liverpool are better equipped than any club in the world to replace him with a player who's going to do, who's going to compensate for his loss, basically. So I do think it's a great point. Any anyone who is worried about losing Salah and if Liverpool think they should bite the bullet and just pay him what he wants type thing, Liverpool have provided the evidence in the past few years that they don't really need to do that. They've got enough knowledge behind them, enough expertise behind them to, if Salah does leave, replace him with someone who's more than capable and potentially going to reach Salah's level in a few years' time. Liverpool, you know, have always made superstars rather than signing them. Um, and Salah is is at eleven now, where he is a superstar. But if he wants to be to be paid to a certain level, Liverpool can't do it. I have no major major issues with 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 Liverpool just running the cycle again and getting the next one in. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's um, it's probably a good time to deal with these two questions because they're, they're on the same subject. Uh, I'll combine them. Uh, after like Kamara has asked, uh, my question is, what will Liverpool do about the Mo Salah contract? Michael Lowe says, why are the negotiations taking so long? Shouldn't shouldn't there be a case of agreeing an extension or pull them on the market for a very big fee? Um, it's kind of the same question, I guess, uh, repackaged in a different way. And I mean, we've just touched on... I, I guess that was a fairly lengthy answer from you, Josh. Um, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, I, I wasn't supposed to be. No, no, but it kind of covered all bases. You know, I predict at the start of not this season, the one after that, Salah probably won't be a Liverpool player. I think that's becoming quite clear now. Um, but maybe, maybe Liverpool officials behind the scenes haven't really given up hope yet, um, which is why they haven't just kind of looked to slap a fee on them, I guess. Um, but I do suspect that if an offer coming in the summer, a big one, probably at the stage now where they, they, they might sell, but I don't see where that offer comes from. So it may even be a case that they just have them for one more year, a bit like they did with Wijnaldum, make as much use as possible, knowing that he's going to go uh, in the following summer. I don't know. It's a hard one, but I mean, to summarise it, in my opinion, and we'll probably talk about Salah a little bit more as the show goes on, but I, I'm... I'm more and more of the opinion now that I don't think Salah's going to remain a Liverpool player over the next, uh, or at the end of next summer. Yeah, so I've got a question from Sampo Latinen. Uh, I think it is. I actually think 
that this person sends in a question all of the time. And that's a few, that's, that's the case with a few of these, actually. So these regular listeners who are sending in questions all the time. Thanks a lot. Uh, Sam Paul mentions, interesting question, actually. He says, could statistics be utilised to identify hidden value in older players? Uh, often statistics are used to find young rising stars whose value hasn't gone up yet. Could the same approach be used for players who are approaching the end? Um, it's an interesting show, yeah, and I do think it's the case. Um, one player who immediately comes to mind for me when it comes to this question is Thiago. You know, Liverpool don't tend to sign players of Thiago's age, but in Thiago's case, Liverpool made an exception. And one of the reasons Liverpool made an exception is because he is ridiculously good. Now, one issue with this is you can probably tell that Thiago is ridiculously good without using the numbers. So, in that sense, I suppose you haven't spotted on a, a hidden older gem who's extremely valuable. But I do think Liverpool will have been able to put a number on exactly what Thiago offers. And despite his age, they made the call that, okay, he's getting on, he doesn't fit the age profile, the age criteria that we typically go for. But in terms of what he offers on the pitch, he's so valuable. And there's plenty of numbers, I'm sure we've referenced them on this show a number of times. I've sent them out on a few newsletters as to why he's so valuable compared to the average player. Keeps the ball brilliantly, but also progresses it well. Very active on the defensive side of the game. Um, able to find the valuable areas of the pitch uh, without looking sometimes. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting one. I think he's, he's he's spot on, and I think Thiago was a great example for me. I'm not sure if you've got a, an example to add, Dave, of an older player maybe who showed up in the numbers and and kind of came in, not specifically for Liverpool, just kind of anywhere. Yeah, I think that the obvious difference between you know what. So I, I guess normally you, you, what you find is uh, younger players at the start of the <clears> journey, <throat> you know, where, and where, where they're coming from in that journey can hugely vary. You know, you could have a player in Belgium, I don't know, uh, Ukraine, uh, just just kind of under the radar, not traditional big football and uh, leagues, and then it, the numbers come become a value because you can you can kind of see them excelling compared to the peers in that division. And that's how they become useful in terms of identifying. Uh, and then obviously uh, you can go about your due diligence and, and more in-depth scouting to see just how good these players are and whether they're worth making a move. But uh, obviously at, at the latter stage of your career, what tends to happen is these the, the top talents have usually already um, been picked up by top sides. So, it's it's very hard. The point I'm trying to make is to drift under the radar if you if you're a very good player for five or ten years, and then suddenly kind of be at a level where you could go to like you know a Liverpool and come and come on their radar. So the reason numbers are so beneficial is because they tend to find those players where they're hidden, where there's the really good players have tended to already go on that path, already come through big sides and work their way up to the kind of the top end and at that stage you know with so many eyes on the biggest teams it's just so hard for players to drift on the radar so I think Thiago is a good example but again you just knew he was a fantastic player as well exactly you know, yeah. yeah already playing at Bayern Munich come through Barcelona you know one of the biggest clubs um, I can't can really you, think can of you think of any, anyone who, who who did drift under the radar and, and just I mean how, how old was Pyatt when West Ham got Pyatt was he Mm, that's not a bad example, actually. Uh, how old was he? 
Um, Tan, I think it's from others who, who were signed late on in the careers and, and really made an impression after getting bored. I don't know. Tan- um, so, I mean, he's he's 35 now, West Ham Borsum in 2015, which is what, that's seven years ago now. So, yeah, I mean, he's maybe not a bad example because um, yeah. he's only been Lille, Marseille before, hadn't he? Uh, they're probably the biggest names he'd be in that. So he's an interesting example. Maybe if we had longer to think about it, we could bring up a couple. But just for the fact that we're struggling now, it shows how rare it is and, and why the value is normally in. In finding those players at a younger age. Yeah, I agree, mate. Go next. Uh, <laughs> I'm massive change of direction here. Uh, Catherine. <laughs> oh, I know what this is. I know what this is. Yeah. Catherine Emma said, uh, Hi, Josh and Dave. Uh, seen this question asked a lot, so thought I would bring it to the table. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? <laughs> <laughs> It, yeah, I'll mean, tell you what, though. Here's my on. take on it. I think the answer is pretty obvious. Um, and I am of the opinion that there would be more doors than wheels uh, in the world. <laughs> I'm going to okay. try and explain a little bit as to why. So I looked into this because I took the question serious. Uh, <laughs> and although there's many different places in which wheels and doors are used, as a starting point, I looked at... Um, like houses. So there's roughly, as an estimate, 2.4 billion homes across the world. And there's 1.2 billion vehicles. So that's a that's a huge difference. Now, on average, um, there tends to be four, um, four wheels on a vehicle, doesn't it, roughly? Um, but if you actually think of like your house now, Josh, mine, people who are listening and watching, how many doors do you actually have in your house? You know, you have a door to each room, you have a door to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I'm not sure about Tom. Tom just popped up there, that our producer saying, don't forget steering wheels. Okay, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure about that, but we'll, we'll say there's five wheels. Um, but, you know, in, in, in your house, how many could you count off the top of your head? You know, your front door, back door, uh, door to each room in your house. I just think there's more in the home. So... In short, my uh, my answer to that would be to be more doors. Uh, but I'll uh, open the floor to you in case you have a different opinion. I agree. The only thing I would add in is we we probably are underestimating how many scooters and, and bikes there's out there. I mean, I've been to Asia a fair few times in my life and there's scooters and bikes absolutely everywhere. Mm. Um, so, but, I, but I do agree with you. I do agree with you. I think I'd side with, with doors, to be honest. Uh, we'll never find out. We never will. It's a, it's a horrible <laughs> question because you'll never get the answer. I mean, it's PhD type stuff, isn't it? Mm, yeah. um, but it's an interesting one, and it's the uh, the kind of analysing Anfield question we like, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a question from Sue K. An interesting one, actually. Maybe I should have sent this one to you because it says, "Do you think Liverpool as a city would have been better with just one club?" A uh, one club city, meaning there was no split back in 1982, and Everton continued on at Anfield. Um, I think there's pros and cons. I, th- I think Liverpool as a city it has the potential to be a force. I think Liverpool is a force as a city anyway. And I think if you consider how passionate both fan bases are anyway, if you combine that, I mean, you'd have you would have a serious force to be reckoned with. I think it'd be virtually impossible to get tickets for the game. Um and 
as I said, the, the, the welcoming when it comes to welcoming coaches to, to, to Anfield on European legs or whatever, if you had the combined power of Goodison as well, it would be a serious force, as I said. It would be something really uh, thingy. But when it comes to whether it would be better, I, I like the Merseyside derby. I like the whole concept of Liverpool. Are you a red or a blue type thing in Liverpool? Mm-hmm. Um, every family's got one, got mixes of both in, in some cases. Um, both clubs have got different histories, although they're kind of brother and sister, if you like. So I don't know. There's pros and cons to it, isn't it? What are your thoughts on Yeah, <clears throat> I, I, I can see the point you're making, definitely. I, I try and think of equivalents of, of kind of one club, big cities, and the two standouts are Leeds um, and Newcastle. Newcastle. Yeah, they're the two big ones. I what I will say, come on. What I will say is, <laughs> this isn't intended as a dig. That the city would be so happy if every mm. single person in the city supported the same club, and that club was doing as well as say Liverpool is at the minute. Mm. And I remember a few seasons ago, Liverpool did well under Rodgers and the same year, I think Bobby Martinez got Everton to fifth, was he? Something like that. Yeah, when they were chasing and I, Champions League. Yeah, I just remember that year, everyone in the city being so happy about their own club. And I think mm. if if Everton fans had a better situation at doing it, maybe that would be the case. But I think if everyone supported one club and that club was as successful as Liverpool are at the moment, at least with Jurgen Klopp in charge and stuff, it would be a very, a uh, very happy place to be, basically. Well, the um, <clears throat> that was very much we weren't alive for, for the boy. If you speak to anyone who's a little bit older, that was very yeah. much the eighties, wasn't it? You know, it was uh, both teams were the best. You know, kind of Liverpool won the league, Everton won the league, Liverpool won it, then Everton won it. Uh, both kind of regulars going to Wembley, um, you know, competing on. Obviously, the the post highs or stuff changed a little bit, but before that, you know, both kind of two of the better sides in Europe as well. Um, so, you know, that would have been a great time, I imagine. But, um, yeah, I don't know. And what I would say is, and this, it's easy to say this when it'll never happen, but I do feel like if, if Merseyside had, it, had just one club, I think it would be a, a lot bigger than, than Newcastle and Leeds. And that shouldn't really, it doesn't seem like it that would make sense geographically. Uh, but it just feels like it would, you know, Everton tend to sell out every week about 38,000. Liverpool obviously sell out that 50 odd thousand. Liverpool could easily get, I'd say, another 20 odd thousand in there. Uh, Everton, despite being rubbish, uh, got a waiting list of something like 10,000 for season tickets. So, you know, what's that about? You know, you're looking over the potentially over 100,000 people who are willing to pay to go football matches. Um, so, yeah, be a big force for sure. But I'm with you. I, I like it how it is. I know. Obviously, Everton have let, let let the team down a little bit over these past few years. You know, the, the, the kind of not really doing much. If they were a bit more competitive, I think it would add any, another edge to the derby. But I still think it's it's the best the way it is. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Rhino quickly asked, "Do you think the future CB partnership is Gomez and Canate?" I don't believe all the media nonsense that Gomez is an average defender. Are there any numbers to back up? He's as good as Klopp believes. Interestingly, I read that question and I haven't seen much of that media talk. Maybe it's it's a little bit deeper in the um, 
kind of Liverpool circles. Uh, but to answer the question, yeah, I still think he can be a really top defender. I think at times I've watched them, uh, I've been really impressed. Again, problems are he had a big injury last season. He's not played a lot of football this season either, has he? Um, but he still he still is only twenty four. So although we can't lean on the numbers too much, which you never can anyway, really with defenders, we know that, don't we? It's a little bit more difficult to caption in black and white just how good they are. Uh, but when you watch him, he is a he is a good, well rounded defender. Uh, he's got loads of good physical attributes as well. So. Yeah, definitely. I'm. Uh, I haven't written, written Gomez off. I'm surprised. I mean, have you heard much of this? And I, I, I'll be honest. I haven't seen much of it. I thought uh, he was still quite highly uh, well revered. No, I don't think it's so much the media. From what I see, it's it's just sections of the fan base, um, and and not not big sections or anything like that. But one thing I liked about it on that one is, I think people maybe underestimate how long Van Dyke will be around for. If you think of Van Dyke's career, it it kind of peaked really late it's arguably still peaking um i don't think he started playing football to, until he was quite quite late in his development mm. um and if you think of now what thiago silver's doing i wouldn't be surprised if van dyke still performing to a really high level at liverpool like age 36 and stuff mm. considering how little energy he has to use in, in a lot of his defending i think van dyke's longevity could be a problem for gomez to be honest um mm. no so, i think it's a really good point yeah yeah. So I've got a question from Terry Finnegan and he says, if Salah was to leave, is it possible Liverpool would sign a right-footed attacker in his place? How would this change things tactically? So I don't think so, personally. If, I, if it was me in charge, I would be very reluctant to do it unless the right-footed forward was someone like Mbappe and he was, you know, equally capable on both flanks and he was very two-footed anyway and and things like that. It's maybe a bit different if the player is very two-footed like Jota or like Mane, but I still think given the nature of Liverpool's 4-3-3, where the player on the left cuts in using his right, the player on the right cuts in using his left. It's very nice the way it works. It works naturally. And I think a lot of the reason it works naturally is because Salah is left-footed. And I think if you put a right-footed player there, I mean, just think about yourself now. I, I've played as a forward a fair few times. If, if if I'm playing on the side of my preferred foot, if I'm on the ball or taking on a player or whatever, I am more inclined to drive towards the corner flag than the goal. Whereas if I'm playing on the opposite flank, I'm more inclined to cut inside and drive towards goal. And Liverpool need that, the latter, you know, the players who will drive towards goal and score goals rather than the players who will hug the touchline and put in crosses. Liverpool aren't a crossing team, so, well, not, not at least in terms of the front three positions. So, I would, it, although it's difficult, I would do what I can to keep the left footed dynamic over there. Um, I've said before, Jared Bowen's left footed, Rafinha's left footed. Um, and if you can get a right footed player who's seriously better than Bowen, like Mbappe, fine, do it. But, if you can get a player who's right-footed and he's only slightly better than Bowen, I'd probably take the slight drop in quality to have the left-footed pick, if you know what I mean. So mm. I think it's an important element to keep. Yeah, I agree. I think the, uh, the, the although the player is obviously important, I think the profile is just as important. And uh, that in many ways, as Salah is just the best version of that profile, but I still think you need that profile if you want to carry on, carry on playing the same way. 
because um, there's no real target man to cross to, is there? It's not really Liverpool's game. And if you think about driving to that corner of the pitch, all you can really do, you're coming away from goal. So all you can really offer there is crosses. And that's not really what they're, what they're looking for. Especially when you have the wing-backs that they do. Yeah, that's it. That. <laughs> um, where are we up to? Alex Webster. Uh, he says, in my opinion, Fabinho is our most important player. And when he doesn't play, we seem to lose control in the midfield and the protection of our back four. We've been linked with Basuma. Uh, now there's a lot of discussions around Germani uh, um, being one of our main targets this summer. I'd like to know how these players compare to Fabinho and whether you think they can provide a similar level of control. Um, alternatively, if you think there's better options out there, let me know who they are. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we talked about Basuma before, like Basuma. Weirdly, with his name being mentioned now, I feel like I've not paid that much close attention to him this year. Um, I think he's still been performing fairly well, but obviously there was a little bit of a to-do at the start of the season. He looked like he he wasn't going to be in the team for a while, but he is, and he's carried on kind of doing his thing. Um, Tamani's a, yeah, an interesting one. I think that the key, the, to answer your question, um, I think that big difference is and we use him as an example. He's 22. Uh, Fabinho's 28. So one's in the prime kind of top end. You know, he's got tons of experience in the elite side of the game. The other is still really kind of um, learning his trade a little bit, you know, at the, at the very highest level. So although they share similar traits, I do think that that's something to consider. You know, would there be a drop in quality? Probably. And I think that's probably the case for Basuma as well. I'm not sure. It, I think Basuma is a fantastic player. But I don't know if his ceiling is as high as, say, Fabinho. So um, I guess where I stand on that. In terms of alternatives, or I think the question was more centered around similar players. You know, maybe use a tool that we've talked about in the past. Um, if you could just type his name in uh, on FB Ref, it'll bring up his page and it'll bring up very similar players on there. So, you know, people can go and have a little look and see who stylistically, um, at least in the numbers, kind of shows up very similar to him as a as a player. Yeah, so I've got a question from Alan Lloyd. We used to get at least one of these and uh, it's I would find them quite tricky to answer because I simply didn't see Liverpool back in this, back in this time, so he asks: Of all the great late eighties Liverpool sides, um, which players do you think would best fit the current LFC team? So it's difficult for me this one because I said I haven't seen the players play; uh, they were before my time, if you like. But based on what I do know, some players come to mind as fits for the system. John Barnes maybe comes to mind as a player who suits the kind of wide forward type role. Um, Ian Rush is obviously a player who was before his time in terms of his willingness to press and things like that. I do think he's slightly different to what we've seen lead the line for Liverpool in the past few years. But I do think if Liverpool, if Klopp had a traditional nine who's very, very good, like a Lewandowski or a Kane, Klopp would have played them. You know, it's daft to consider that Liverpool wouldn't have played those players because he didn't fit the system. They're just too good. You build the system around them. So I think Rush would have been um, a, a capable player. I also think potentially Alan Hansen as well. 
it reminds me of a bit of a, an 80s version of Van Dyke in a way in terms of just how cool he was on the ball, how calm he was, uh, but also, um, you know, very, very progressive in his passing and, and a little bit got shades of Joel Massett maybe. Um, and he, I think he had good height. I think he's about six foot two or something like that, Alan Hansen. So, yeah, there's a few players. I mean, Gerard to throw in there as well, but he's not he's not the 80s, is he? But as I said, I haven't seen any of these players play. Uh, but based on what I do know, I'd throw Rush in there, throw Barnes in there. There's quite a few of them, Beardsley as well. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Okay, this, I thought this was a actually really in, interesting question, Josh, because um, initially I th- uh, I thought, well, we do say this a lot, and we don't usually ad- address it. Why? And if you were just tuning in, you might you might come up with this question. So I, I do think it's something worth was addressing. But Sean O'Connor says, why do you often reference a player being English as an attribute? Surely the podcast is more about tangible statistical proof. To back up opinions, um, yeah, it is. It is in some ways, uh, but you know, we like think it's a little bit more than that as well. It's not just about the numbers. That being said, to, to address your question, um, it's more to do with the fact that uh, Premier League sides need at least eight homegrown players on their squad. So having that, having someone, it, it almost kind of ticks a box, doesn't it? If you can bring in a, a really, really good player. Um, who has all those attributes that we normally refer to, but then he's English as well. You you fit in a a quota, I guess, uh, and it takes that pressure off recruitment elsewhere. So I believe that's why it's uh, it's really important. And then there are other smaller reasons, you know, save the you know the league a little bit better. Um, there's maybe speak the language, speak the language. Yeah, I'm just just going to say that. Yeah, speak the language. Um, Trying to think of anything. Can you think of anything else? I think there's something in there. In if you're an English club, you could argue you should really have an English core. If you know what I mean. Mm. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like when it comes to a, a Barcelona, for example, I always think Barcelona should have a Spanish core. There's just something about it. <laughs> uh, Juventus should have an Italian core. Bayern Munich should be predominantly German. Mm. And English clubs, I think, have a bit of a tendency to move away from that at times, almost mm. by accident. Um, but I think Liverpool have done well in the past few years through, um, you know, having you know Jordan Henderson, James Milner as real pillars in the team. Uh, Robertson is is Scottish, but you know it's vaguely similar in terms of his understanding of the game and things like that. And his perks, since Alexander Arnold's obviously Scouse, so I think that comes into it. Um, yeah. And I I also think that when it comes to us referencing. The English thing, particularly to do with younger players who are maybe coming through as academy products like Harvey Elliott or Curtis Jones. One of the reasons I mention it sometimes is because it's it's a valuable pick in terms of value in a transfer market. You can if you're selling an English player or a British player, even someone who's homegrown, you just seem to be able to charge this extra tax and these Premier League clubs for, for whatever reason seem willing to pay. Um, yeah. I mean, so, Grealish is a prime example, isn't he? Grealish is obviously fantastic talent, uh, but he—I I think you could find equivalents of Grealish's talent somewhere in Europe. You know, there's players of that quality, but would they have generated a hundred million as a transfer fee? Probably unlikely. 
Um, so that's a big one. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the crux of the answer, just to be clear again, is there's a there's a. a quote it's not just a Patriots yeah. answer, is it? Yeah, it's yeah. Not, it's not just a. Oh, he's English, great. Yeah, yeah. There's not. It's not that. It's uh, yeah. It's it's not kind of uh, putting it on a pedestal being English. It's it's more just yeah. that you know, and certainly in terms of Premier League sides, it's uh, you do need at least eight. So if you can get if you can get a really good player who has that in the locker as well, then it's it's a bonus. So I've got a question from Mikey Way, and he asks, how come left side of the attackers? such as Jota, Diaz and Mane can all play on the right if needed, but there's no discussion that I'm aware of. Ari Simicas delivering for Trent, uh, covering for Trent, where he's out injured. Uh, he's one of the most two-fuzzled. Yeah, it's a good shout. I've seen it mentioned once or twice. Someone messaged me last week about this, um, and I put on a little, I put a vis up somewhere, I can't remember what I put it up. Uh, but he's, the, I think he's the third most two-footed player in the squad behind only Jota and Mane. Uh, but the bottom line is, I don't really know. I, th- I do think it's different, though, operating on both flanks as a forward compared to doing it as a fullback, particularly in the Liverpool system. Because in the Liverpool system, you are, particularly the fullbacks, they're supposed to provide the width. They're supposed to hold, hold the touchline, essentially. And if you put a player... I said before, didn't I? If you put a player on the opposite flank to his preferred foot, he is naturally going to start coming inside on the ball. And in Liverpool's system, if the fullback starts doing that, you can't. Everybody is in the middle. <laughs> everybody ends up in the centre of the park. So I understand the shout. Um, but as I said, with Liverpool's fullbacks, you really need them to stay out wide most of the time. I know Trent is starting to come inwards lately bit of a new development this season but whenever he does that Henderson moves out wide so that's what that's what on that relationship or, or Salah will stay out wide but I think predominantly the fullbacks are still the players who provide the width in the team usually um, and it's it would be tricky for Simicast to do that using his his, his wrong foot if you, if you know what I mean um, but having said that in certain games particularly when Liverpool were the strongest, I wouldn't mind seeing it maybe as an experiment or whatever, because I do think stylistically, I think Simicast is probably more similar to Trent than he is to Robertson, to be honest, because I think he's, I think Robertson is just a Jordan bunny, isn't he, in terms of going up and down all, all day and threatening him behind and mm-hmm. hitting crosses from the byline, whereas I think Simicast is a bit more like Trent in terms of his, his passing being the real threat and being a bit more cultured on the ball, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's an assessment show. Yeah. Um, Andy Poole asks, are Nico Williams's underlying numbers similar to Trent's uh, in comparison to the other fullbacks in the championship? So I did have a quick glance. Um, obviously, we are a little bit time sensitive, but I, I did look into it. And, you know, two of the more basic areas of chance creation we can look at. And that's the big one, isn't it, really? Obviously, we we, we want him to be able to def- defend. We know he, he can. Uh, but I think the big one when we're, we're talking about comparisons to Trent is, is creation. And um, obviously, we saw he's, he scored goals and assists there already. But in terms of um, things a little bit deeper, and those would be uh, key passes and progressive passes, he ranks third in the whole championship for players who've played 500-plus uh, league minutes so far. Um, so, yeah, that's third for key passes and third for progressive passes. 
In terms of paying 90 numbers, they're both a little lower than what uh, Trent's producing in the Premier League. So Williams's key passes 0.65 per 90, uh, progressive passes 10.2 per 90. Uh, Trent is, I think he's a lot closer to, he's well, he's about 1.1 for key passes off the top of my head and somewhere around uh, over 15 for progressive passes per 90. So the numbers are lower than Trent's, but let's be honest, we kind of expect that, wouldn't we? Uh, but I think he's a, he's in a good place, Williams. And I think that was a really good move for them to go to Fulham. Um, you know, they obviously uh, under Marco Silva have a big emphasis on fullbacks getting heavily involved and in going forwards. You know, it's a great breeding ga- gra- uh, breeding ground, I should say, uh, for Williams to do well. And so far, he's he's definitely grasping his opportunity there, uh, and he's shown really well in the numbers and performing well there and uh, I expect he's going to come back a, a, a better player Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel I've got a question from Katie Cop. Uh, that, that name rings a bell <laughs> I think we always flag that name whether it's an actual name I don't know but you know um, I would like so, to know if it is or not you know if she can maybe yeah yeah that was nice time. yeah yeah so, are you generally concerned the Salah contract is issue is still unresolved? Surely FSG understand that one of the world's best players is going to cost a lot of money to the team. <clears throat> um, no, I'm, I don't feel that concerned. Actually, I was more concerned earlier earlier in the season, but now I'm getting more at peace with it. I think, and I think a lot of that stems from what I said before in terms of just having so much trust in Liverpool's recruitment practices and Liverpool's ability to replace Salah if needed and I think Liverpool will have offered them what he deserves um, in their eyes at least in reference to the rest of the squad I do think he'll be offered the highest earner but I think he wants more I'm not particularly sure why he's digging his heels into the ground if you like uh, but he seems to be and if he's doing that if the player wants to I sent out a newsletter a few weeks back and I kind of concluded the newsletter with FSG have kind of They've pulled the master stroke really because they've kind of put Liverpool in a position now whereby if you want to win, you essentially come to Liverpool. Now, if you want to get paid, you you go elsewhere. That's kind of the, the dynamic that FSG have struck at Liverpool now because of the quality of the squad that they've constructed, the state of Anfield, the elite status of the coach and Liverpool's ability to compete for the biggest honours every year. So, you know, if, if Liverpool can strike that balance, which they have over the years, it makes Liverpool look brilliant and um, it makes any player who leaves, whether Salah does or doesn't, it's relatively odd. I mean, I'm not sure why he would, apart from those Liverpool are not offering him. Liverpool are offering him everything across the board except an extra 100 grand a week. <laughs> um, mm. So it depends how important that is to you. So, no... Is the answer? I'm not that concerned. I'm at peace. Whatever happens, I have trust in the club to do the the right thing, performance-wise. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, interestingly, it worked out quite well. This um, the, the 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 next question I had uh, here off David Williams was uh, how high do you think the pool have gone in regard to Mo Salah's weekly contract? <clears throat> His own bet is around three hundred thousand per week. But he does point out that other players might have clauses in their contracts um, so that they could be on very close 
or ex- the exact same to the uh, the highest earner in the squad. Obviously, FSG simply won't just bend. Uh, Salah's age goes against them. It looks as if it's only going one way. What do we think? Um, I mean, we've touched on it, haven't we? I said it a little bit earlier. I, I don't see him being a Liverpool player uh, at the end of his current deal. Could get me eye wiped, of course. A lot can happen in football. I, I, one one way I think that could change is if uh, it becomes very clear to Salah and his representatives that the the deal or the offer that he's open for won't be forthcoming. You know, we've tried to uh, between us work out what clubs we think he could end up moving to, um, and that list is very small. And even the ones that have been uh, we've we talked about are no guarantee, not guaranteed. You know, the only one we can realistically kind of make a case for is PSG. But you know, with that in itself comes with its own drawbacks, as we saw with like some Messi going there. Uh, Neymar, you know, it hasn't really um, certainly. I think Messi, we know what's going on there. You know, it's at the end of his career, but certainly Neymar, you know, Neymar went there arguably in the peak, still an elite talent to try and take them onto the next level, um, win Champions League, and, and and carry on being that superstar. He is still a superstar, but. I don't know if in 15 years' time will he look back and regret that move. Uh, potentially, he did try and leave, didn't he? Obviously, people forget that. Um, I actually forgot that until I watched the... I don't know if you've seen it yet, Josh, the Neymar documentary on Netflix. I haven't seen it yet, no. Yeah, it's worth a watch, mate. But, um, yeah, obviously, he tried to leave. I, I'd forgot about that. But, uh, in short, yeah, you're probably right around the figure that, you, that you've mentioned, 300k. Um and I don't think he'll get that extra hundred grand that Josh mentioned. And yeah, it's a it's a tough one. Anything to add on the salary stuff, Josh? No, uh, I'm sure we will between now and the end of the season. But uh, considering this is a Q and A, I suppose we're best spreading <laughs> spreading the uh, questions around. And I think mm-hmm. we've had a fair few about Salah. So I think I'll move on to a question from Mike Wall, and it's a FPL question. He asks, it's well known in the FBL space that the forward options are terrible by Kane. With your analyst hats on, who would you recommend? Um, <laughs> Josh Williams can take this one, trust me. <laughs> years I forget this. So, yeah, you, uh, you take this one, mate, on your own. <laughs> Dave has actually somehow been relegated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm close to it, I'm telling you. Uh, yeah, um, Let's not talk about me. <laughs> So I think the only one I'd recommend it to Benny, specifically because of the fixtures upcoming, I'd probably get in Reghorst. Uh, I think I'm looking at doing that anyway. He's got a few doubles. Okay, he's got Manchester City, but in between the doubles, I think he's got Norwich. And his record in the Bundesliga was good. He, okay, he's playing for Burnley, not great. But his record in the Bundesliga, I think, for something like six seasons run up until his Burnley move, he scored at least 10 Bundesliga goals every year. So... He's a proven scorer, um, and he's probably the player I'll be looking to get in. But whether he will catch fire or not, I am not too sure. Next question. <laughs> um, Larkin H. Possession is a... St- oh, a couple of people have done this, but I don't know if like this, Josh. We're reluctant sometimes to say it, but I'll say it this time. So he, he starts uh, saying, hey, guys, big fan of the pod, so thank you. Um, possession is a stat often cited by fans and media. Uh, Brighton leads in the top six for possession, uh, but nowhere close to that in the table. 
Liverpool drew with Arsenal with a 78 possession share, lost to West Ham with 68. One versus Brighton with 48. Uh, what's the best way to talk about and analyse possession? Um, is it only as good as the goals it leads to? Uh, and thank you for your hard work. Yeah, so <clears throat> briefly, uh, possession is just a d- descriptive stat, stat really. Uh, it doesn't re- directly link to success. Uh, it's more, you know, linked to philosophy, I guess. Uh, some some obviously value it, uh, other coaches not so much. My personal point of view is I, I prefer my team to dominate the ball. Um, I think it aids in so many departments. You know, it can help you uh, build attacks better, uh, have pitch control, largely dominate proceedings. The obvious one is the opposition can't score if they don't have the ball, so chances are they'll have fewer chances than you. Um and there's a reason why, you know, all the best sides really ac- across Europe, if you actually think about it, dominate the ball. You know, there might be the odd example, like maybe uh, Atletico, you know, they don't necessarily dominate duty. Um, although, you know what, I bet you if we looked at the possession stats now, they'd still be quite quite high up there. Uh, but, yeah, on the uh, on the whole, it, it, there's a reason why the top, top sides tend to look to dominate the ball. Um, so it's not the be-all and end-all. I'd only use it as a descriptive stat, really, but it does definitely link a lot to um, playing philosophy. Yeah, so I've got a question from Luke Young. Uh, he asks, being realistic, if you could sign one player in the summer, who would it be and why? Um, it's a bit of a difficult one, that. But I think looking at Liverpool's squad, I like the shout that um, Chiuameni has, has put forward. Um uh, Liverpool got linked a few months back. At the time, I hadn't even thought about it because uh, I didn't think it was that much of a realistic one because he was getting linked with Real Madrid and he was getting linked with Chelsea and stuff like that. But it since it since seems to be a case of like for about 40, 50 million, maybe you could acquire him considering this contract situation. And I do think what he offers... I mean, Liverpool have, have gained control in the past few months. Liverpool are really keeping clean sheets all the time now, so I'm not sure we needing so much anymore but at the time at least I thought Liverpool really needed a player like that um, and I, I, I would like to see him at Liverpool I think he's he, he looks to be in the numbers at least extremely active without the ball in terms of just making tackles and interceptions and things like that you have to be careful with stuff like that but he does seem very active um, like that um, very young full of potential <laughs> on the ball Um Good size, fits with Liverpool's typical midfield. Um, so I think he's a player who I would like to see at Anfield. Another one as well is, is Bellingham, but I think Bellingham's a little bit less likely considering his contract and considering Dortmund are probably going to lose Haaland this summer. So I don't think Bellingham will move, personally. Um, but yeah, that's just off the top of my head. Maybe there's more I'd be able to think of. Um, ben Marshall asks um with the Nico Williams probably leaving uh Gomez probably <coughs> leaving I'd be surprised if they both happen but as I said maybe I'm I'm missing it uh there's been a lot of talk of of their replacements van der Berg was signed as a center back but seems to have played most of the season as a right wing back is he ready to step up as the fourth choice center back and maybe even a backup for Trent I think um 
I think as a centre back, he can obviously be um, good cover. Although I don't think he's he's good enough yet, from what I've seen. Um, but on the point of being a a right back, uh, no, I can't see that one. You know, I think as a profile, he's completely different to Trent, isn't he? Um, and I did from what I've seen of Preston, and you know, maybe maybe Ben will come back and tell me I'm I'm wrong. But from from what I've seen of Preston this year. It seems that they, they play with a three at the back, but he seems to be more part of that defensive trio um, as opposed to, you know, the right wing wing back in the system. As I said, that maybe maybe I've not seen enough of them. I'm getting it wrong, but I think that would probably make more sense. I think he's a bit more suited for that. I think he's played right wing back once or twice, but predominantly he plays as a centre-back in the back three. Uh, again, that's something else that tends to, um, tends to be of benefit to, central defenders who maybe aren't the strongest. You know, I'm not going to pull him in that bracket for now, but in short, you know, he's got the potential to be that kind of fourth choice centre-back, uh, but I, I can't see him being a a right wing-back or right-back uh, option for Liverpool going forward. So I've got another one from Luke. Uh, this is a bit of a fun one. <laughs> um, and I haven't planned for this, so I'm going to do this off the top of my head. He says, Josh, during your lifetime, which is cru- the crucial part of this, during your lifetime, what players make up your best Liverpool starting eleven? So, I would go, Klopp is the coach, and I'd go Alisson, Rudson, Van Dijk, Matip, Trent, Fabinho, Thiago, Gerard, Salah, Mane, Suarez. So basically, the current team, <laughs> but Suarez and Gerard included. Um, that I suppose that's a testament to the, the current level of the current side. And there's, I, I must stress as well that that that's based purely on like just pure individual level and quality. Obviously, I'd like to throw someone like Jordan Henderson in there, but he doesn't make it in terms of his level. He don't get me wrong; he's great. I love him. I think he's great, but. He doesn't make it in terms of his level. Xabi Alonso, his level was reached after Liverpool, I think, or in his final season at Liverpool. Mascherano, again, honourable mention, brilliant. Sammy Hibier, honourable mention, but um, I think it's... I don't think I'd have any arguments, to be honest with that one. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, there's not much I'd, I'd change in that, to be honest. You know, that's... It is just adding that, those kind of two real elite... Liverpool players of the last you know, 20 odd years who, who didn't make it in this group, you know, come a little bit before that, just adding them into it. Um, I mean, that'd be a ridiculously good side. Um, where am I up to? Lee Connor says, um, with the ageing midfield, should we go for a Bellingham slash Rice slash Phillips type signing in the summer or rely on our younger players coming through um <clears throat> i think it's i think definitely if you can add ready-made quality into the side then that's that's really important because you know if you think about what liverpool are doing uh the, the kind of competing on all fronts in, in terms of an all-round squad they're really in the prime you know one of the best in the world right now can't really afford too many big transition periods if you want to make use of of this because 
whilst you can plan ahead um, and recruit well, there's still no guarantee that you can replicate what you have now. Um, so this could be a, a finite period where Liverpool can really, you know, uh, have a lot of success. So yeah, I think if you can if you can add ready-made quality in there, then that's important to do so. Um, because it also takes the pressure off any younger players coming through. You know, there's not as as big an expectation on them. They can kind of be bedded in more naturally, which you know helps them as well. So, yeah, if 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 it, one of those ready-made talents can be purchased, then definitely. But what we have seen with Liverpool, uh, and we've applauded it in the past, is they won't just spend for the sake of spending it. You know, the if, if there is someone that they can rely on uh, who's coming through and maybe uh, go for a better suit of target 12 months later, then they'll, then they'll do that. So there's no guarantee that they will go for one of those three, three names um, and maybe someone better suited might be uh, might be in the pipeline to be uh, purchased at a later date. But yeah, yeah, for me, uh, if you can get one of them in, then, then you do it. So, so I think we're going to leave it there, mate. Um, <clears throat> I still have plenty left. I'm sure you do as well, mm. uh, as usual. So uh, what we're probably going to do is revisit the rest next week. Um, didn't get through very many at all on my side, really, by looks of it. Um, but, yeah, we've got plenty to, to do another episode next week. So if you haven't heard your question yet, listen in next week. Hopefully it'll come up. Um, and we've also got the odd game, I think, to preview next week. Well. I mean, we don't preview games as much anymore, do we? spoke about overriding talking points, but uh, we'll try and make this a part of next week's show. So thanks for sending in the questions. Dave, uh, thanks for joining us, mate. Yeah, thank you, mate. And uh, yeah, just to answer your question, I've got a few left. So yeah, apologies that we didn't get through them, but we will. Yeah, we'll sort that next week. Uh, so thanks for tuning in this week. Thanks for sending in your questions. And do join us for part two next week. See you then. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.